You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So I am a, a lover of music, as many of us are. I'm sure many of you are. I'm not really a trained musician. I'm like the kid who listened to a lot of punk rock and just sort of picked up some chords in high school, and then the youth pastor handed me a guitar, and now here I am, you know. Um, But I know enough about music, and so I'd like to start with a really basic music lesson for us. Some I'm sure you guys all probably already know. But when it comes to a piece of music, every piece of music has a certain key, right? A key is a scale of notes around which a piece of music, a song, is built. And there are two kinds of keys. There are major keys, right? And then there are minor keys. Are you with me so far? Right? Major keys and minor keys. And at risk of, you know, giving an oversimplification, typically songs in a major key are more celebratory and happy, right? And songs in a minor key are a little more somber. So I don't know how it happened this morning. Setup team got here. We're all serving. And somehow we're singing, you know, Celebrate Good Times by Cool and the Gang, I think, you know. That is a major key song. Or Happy Birthday. Happy birthday to you. That's a celebratory. I don't know why I sang it as if you didn't know it, but just in case, right? That's a major key song. Or the wedding march, if you go to to a wedding and you hear it, right, that's a major key song. In fact, uh, if you go on YouTube, you can find people jokingly taking common major key songs like that and putting them in the minor key, and it's very disorienting, right? Makes them sound sad. So major key songs, generally more celebratory. Minor key songs are generally more sad. I know it's oversimplification, but it's true. So the Funeral March by Chopin, that's a really famous uh, um, song that's like that. Or a favorite of mine by one of my favorites, Hurt by Johnny Cash. I know we got a lot of Johnny Cash fans in the room, would be an example of that. Now some songs are a little more complicated. So later on in the gathering, we'll sing one of my favorite songs we sing called Oh God. And oh God is in the major key, but it starts, the verse starts with a minor chord. And the chorus, which is more celebratory, is only in major chords. So there's this sort of transition there. Then sometimes you have major key songs with minor sounding lyrics, sad sounding lyrics, and vice versa. In essence, when we think about it, Song keys are a lot like the book of Psalms. We've been walking through various Psalms this summer, and being like the book of Psalms, they're also a lot like our own lives, right? They're a mixture of major keys, celebratory moments, joyous moments, and minor keys, difficult, hard, sad moments, and sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes those things are completely and totally jumbled up together. And so if we use this grid uh, of major keys, happy minor keys, sad songs, Psalm 42 would fit in the minor key category this morning. Very minor key. 
We've, we've, we've mostly looked at songs. If, if we look at the psalms we've considered so far, most of them have been major key songs. They've been celebratory. They've been pointing us to the, the joy of the Lord. Psalm 32 um, is, ends with a major key, but it starts sort of in a, in a minor key way. But this is a sad song. This is an honest prayer from someone who's deep in the throes of what we could call a spiritual depression. That, that's a phrase uh, I get from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh, Welsh physician turned pastor who preached a sermon series on this in 1965 that later became a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. Other Christians in the past have called this the dark night of the soul. It's a deep sense of sadness and sorrow and, and distance from God. And it's more than just, you know, feeling sad sometimes. It's something that seems like it's impossible to overcome. It's a spiritual depression. As the psalmist describes it, it's, it's the moments when, the pro, prolonged moments when our souls are cast down. There seems to be nothing to, to lift them up. Now, when we talk about depression more generally, this is something we know is not just the struggle of the psalmist. It's something that's very common in the world around us. The percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime has reached 29%, a recent Gallup poll has shown. And that is, that's a 10-point increase since 2015. The percentage of Americans who currently have or are being treated for depression has also increased to 17.8%, which is about a seven-point increase since 2015. This is in the U.S., so just so you know, we're talking about close to 60 million people who, whether Christian or not, might hear the description of this psalm and say, I feel like that right now. And we know this is a, a common struggle. It's not a new struggle because at this writing, think of what the Psalms are. Look at the superscription in verse 1. To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Now, who were the sons of Korah? They were priests. They were Levites who were essentially the song leaders in the Old Testament for Israel. They were the, the, the worship leaders. Second Chronicles 2019 describes their song leading. The, Kor uh, the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. That's what they did. But we know it wasn't just major key, happy celebratory psalms, right? This was a psalm, though very personal, that was sung in the corporate gathering of the people meaning it wasn't just one person's experience. It was a collective experience of God's people. And again, we should find this encouraging, right? That Scriptures speak directly to such a, a common problem that we struggle with, that our world struggles with today. God isn't silent on the issue of depression, on deep discouragement, on the dark night of the soul. We see in Psalm 42, we've seen it time and time again, um, in, in the Psalms, whatever the experience, whatever the struggle, no matter how dark it is, we are to bring that to God. We're to pour out our hearts to Him in prayer, knowing that He hears us, that He's with us, even when we don't feel like it. 
even when he feels distant. Now, I want to give a disclaimer this morning. It might be obvious, but I think it's important. We're not going to say all there is to be said about depression. I think that's obvious, but just to remind you, there's a, there's a lot of ink spilled on this issue. Our task, my task this morning, is to expound the psalm. Much more can be said. I think in a lot of ways, much more should be said. But what we do find here is simply this. So if we're to sum this up, what is Psalm 42? We find a pattern for how to respond when our souls are downcast. That's what Psalm 42 gives us. How to, to tell our souls to hope in God when we feel like we're in the, in the throes of deep, deep discouragement or spiritual depression. And we're going to work through this psalm with, with three questions um, that we're asking ourselves in these moments. We're asking them with the psalmist. Number one, what am I feeling? We see the psalmist is honest about his internal struggle. That's number one. Number two, what's happening around me? That's where we see the psalmist's external circumstances. And number three, what do I do about it? How does the psalmist respond? Number one, what am I feeling? Internal struggle. Number two, what's happening around me? External circumstances. Number three, what do I do about it? How do I respond? Okay. So as we jump in, number one, what am I feeling? This is where we see the psalmist's internal struggle. One of the first things we notice about the psalmist is that he, is, he vividly describes his internal struggle. He is very self-aware here of what's going on before. As I've said before, I think you could, this would be a great study to do. You could get a really great picture, a theology of human emotion from the book of Psalms, right? And, and we see this here. Psalm 42 is no exception. He doesn't suppress or ignore his emotions. He's not a stoic. I think sometimes people, you know, try to equate Christianity with stoicism. Well, if you're going to be a good Christian, when you feel these sort of deep longings, these sorrows, these, you feel just, just push it down, put on a brave face. It's not what he does. Nor is he led by his emotions. They're not the final uh, uh, dictating factor in where he's headed spiritually. We'll see that later. He doesn't, he doesn't fall captive to, to either of those extremes, which I think are common in the world around us. But what he does do is he honestly and clearly describes his internal struggle. And he's no holds barred in the language that he uses. We see first, so what is his internal struggle? We see first that he speaks of longing. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When I became a Christian, our church sang a song from this, and it was very major key. As the deer panteth for the water. Anyone heard that one? No, just me? Okay, great. You know what I'm talking about. And it has this idea of this sort of beautiful picture of longing for God. And I think there, obviously there's true, that's true in Scripture. We see that. But that's not what's happening here. It's, it's actually not a very happy picture. You, you're, you're meant to picture a deer who is about to die of thirst, right? Emaciated, panting. If you're thirsty, this might sound obvious, that means there's probably no water around and there hasn't been water around for a long time. This is a picture of someone who is dying of thirst. So I think when we tend to think of this verse, we focus on the, the good side of longing. 
But the thirst image gives us this idea. What, what he's saying is, God, I want you, but you are nowhere to be found. That's how he feels. That, that's the depth of his longing. I wonder if you've, have you ever felt that way? God, I want you, but you're nowhere to be found. I, I read the scriptures, and it just, I feel nothing, right? I pray, I pour out my heart to you, and it seems like the prayers just stop at the ceiling. God, I know, I know cognitively, right, I know the theology that you're, you're with your people, but you feel a million miles away. I'm thirsty for you, God. I'm lonely, even though I might be surrounded by a ton of people. I'm dying of thirst for your presence. God, where are you? That's what that image is meant to to convey, this longing for God because he seems nowhere to be found. He goes on, he also describes continual sorrow and turmoil. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You hear that? Day and night, continually in sorrow. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. And then you have the repetition of verse 5. Why are you downcast? Verse 11, why are you cast down? God, where are you? Again in the next chapter, 43, verse 5, this repetition. This is more than just a bad day. We're not looking at someone who just had a bad day at work or an argument with his his spouse. This isn't mild discouragement. This is long-term, ongoing, day and night sorrow of the soul. Waves don't stop crashing. That's why he uses that imagery, right? Waterfalls don't stop. They're continual. This is ongoing. And notice also he points out that it's so serious that it affects him physically. Verse 3 again. His tears have been his food day and night. He's, He's saying... I'm not eating. Right? It's a common struggle when we think of depression, lack of sleep. Right? The, the appetite is completely gone. The sorrow is so deep that it affects you physically. Verse 10, he tells us that this feels like a deadly wound in his bones. He described this in Psalm 32. The issue there was he was covering up sin. It's not the case here. But he talks about how it eats away at the inside. I think this is really important for us as Christians because I think in recent history, the church has not gotten this right. That there are physical aspects to spiritual problems. There's two unhelpful extremes when we talk about something like mental health or or depression. One would be the secular extreme that denies uh, the existence of God, denies the existence of of a soul. And what that is is, hey, listen, your problem is merely a biological problem. The machine is broken if you're depressed. So here's some, here's some things that you can do, right? We need to fix the machine, so here's some medication which can be helpful if used rightly. It's a gift of God's common grace. You know, just sleep well and eat right, but we don't need to talk about your soul if, there, if you even have one, right? 
You have a physical problem and there's a physical solution. That's one extreme. The other would be the religious extreme, which sadly, again, I think many Christians have adopted that says, well, listen, this is merely a spiritual problem. So just pray harder. Here's some verses. Medicine isn't prescribed, but memory verses are. Take two of these. Call me in the morning. Make sure you go to church, and then you'll feel better. And the physical aspects are completely ignored or even scoffed at. But friends, both of those are completely and totally unbiblical extremes. As men and women created in the image of God, we are embodied souls. We are physical and spiritual. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned his book before, he says this, you cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical for we are body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any other time. And there are great illustrations of this in Scripture, Psalm 42 being one. If you recognize, however, that the physical may be partly responsible for your spiritual condition and make allowances for that, you will be better able to deal with the spiritual. Really helpful balanced picture of this. So, take the psalmist picture. It's likely that his spiritual depression spurred on his lack of sleep and lack of eating. He's awake day and night. He's eating his tears. This is his way of saying, I'm not eating food. It's likely that's a result of what we'll see in a moment, these circumstances he's experiencing. But it's also true that his lack of sleep and eating is in turn exacerbated by his spiritual, exacerbates his spiritual depression. You see that? So he's in a dark night of the soul. He stops eating. He stops, you know, stops sleeping. But because he's not eating and because he's not sleeping, the dark night of the soul is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. He is so affected by this, both physically and spiritually. So friends, if that's you, you need to consider the holistic picture of your life, You need to to consider not just, am I believing right truths about God? We'll get get there in a moment. But also, how am I living? Am Am I recognizing that I am an embodied soul, that God cares not just about my spiritual life, but my physical life as well? And the psalmist is aware of this. He vividly describes this struggle. All right, now moving on. He describes then what's probably the most heartbreaking verse in this chapter, and that's verse 9, where he tells us very clearly that he feels forgotten by God. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He doesn't say, God, I think you've forgotten me, but I know theologically that's not correct. He says, God, why have you forgotten me? And I wonder, friends, what would you say if a Christian friend came up to you, tears in their eyes, lump in their throat, and said, why has God forgotten me? Or maybe you're that person. What would you hope, as you ask that question, what would you hope someone would say to you? 
Here's a common temptation among Bible-believing Christians. That's an oxymoron, by the way, right? The temptation is to give the theological answer, right? Why has God forgotten me? And you want to say, I'm honest, this is what I want to say. I want to say, God hasn't forgotten you. God never forgets his people. And I can take you to five places in the Bible that will confirm that. That is a true statement, right? If we're going to be technical about the psalmist's language here, then his statement that God has forgotten him is technically incorrect. But I want to point this out to you. Don't do that first. Don't give the theological answer to someone who's hurting like this. I want to point out that God does not rebuke the psalmist in Psalm 42 or any of the psalms of lament when they pour out their feelings to him in this way. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 that's not theologically correct. Scratch that, try again. Why doesn't he do that? Because God's desire is that his downcast children would pour out their messy hearts to him in faithful, lamenting prayer. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He is going to God in faith. And he is allowed to express how he is feeling to God. Let me give you permission because the Bible gives it and maybe somewhere along the way you thought you weren't able to do this as a follower of Christ. You have permission to express the deepest, darkest pains of your soul to God. It's one of the most important lessons that the Psalms give us. Now, and, and the, the, the immediate answer shouldn't be, you know what, that's theologically incorrect, Kevin. I'll give you an example of this from the book of Job. Job was a man who experienced unimaginable suffering, lost everything, lost his health, lost his wealth. His wife told him to curse God and die. His children are dead. His soul is very downcast. He would pray this prayer well. And Job has these three friends, and they come to comfort him. And at first, they nail it. They're great friends. They sit down and weep with him for seven days. They don't say a word. Just great brothers who are shoulder to shoulder with him. Then, Job gives his first speech, and it's raw. He could very easily say, God, why have you forgotten me? And the first friend decides that he's going to to respond to Job and give him a, a nice, pat, theological answer to why he shouldn't talk that way to God. And Job responds in Job chapter 6. And verse 26 is such an interesting verse. Listen to what Job says to his friend. He says, Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You hear what he's saying? Job is saying, listen, I'm in despair. I'm hurting. I'm lamenting. I'm pouring out my soul to God. Please don't be nitpicky about my words. That's what he's saying. You're, you're trying to reprove me when I'm just, yes, my speech is wind because my heart is broken and I feel like God is nowhere to be found. Don't reprove my speech. Don't be theologically nitpicky about my words. That is good advice for us, friends. As we help one another, as we help our depressed brothers and sisters, we need to learn the art of 
listening more and speaking less. We need to practice this just being a safe presence to weep with those who weep. There's going to come a time, we'll see it in the psalm, there's going to come a time when when we lovingly remind ourselves and love one another of the, the doctrinal truths right, that we anchor ourselves in. But, friends, when the speech of a despairing friend is wind, our first and foremost job is to sit with them and endure the storm. Right? That's what we're called to do. And so, if you're helping someone, maybe you say, I don't feel this dark night of the soul now, but I know someone who is. Just remember that truth. And friends, if that is you, if you are in that place, let me remind you, don't hesitate to articulate those feelings in fullness to the Lord. Don't suppress them. Pour them out to Him. He hears you. He is not shocked by this. That's why the psalmist can do this so comfortably. Okay, so that's number one. What am I feeling? The psalmist describes his internal struggle. Now, move on to number two. What's happening around me? What's happening around me? This is where we read of the psalmist's external circumstances. So we get, we, we, he tells us very clearly what the circumstance of his discouragement is here. We read first that he is away from the people of God. He's unable to worship in the temple, and that breaks his heart. Verse 2, when shall I come to appear before God? And he, what he's talking about there is temple worship in Jerusalem. Verse 4, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my heart or pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Then we read in verse 6 that he's unable to do any of that because He's in the land of Jordan and of Hermon. So this would have been north of the Sea of Galilee. And what, the, what he's essentially saying is, I am very far from Jerusalem where the temple is and where my people are. Now, we don't know why he's kept away. Some have speculated that the, the, the sons of Korah are writing of the story of David when he's fleeing from Absalom, his son, when he's exiled from the city. Might be the case. We're not really sure. But we know the reason that he's, he can't worship with the people of God is a troubling reason. We know that because, secondly, we, we read that he's mistreated by others. So not only is he away from the people of God, away from the temple, he's also mistreated and taunted by others. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 9, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So this tells us that something else is going on here we don't know about. If he was just traveling, you know, and like, oh, I missed a few Sundays of church, he wouldn't be this heartbroken, and people around him wouldn't be taunting him. But whatever it is, they're looking at him, they're looking at his suffering, and they're saying, God must have abandoned him. That's what his enemies are saying. Modern example would be maybe a Christian family just devotes their life to ministry, generosity, then financial trouble strikes and a, an unbelieving neighbor, maybe his heart is hard to the gospel, says, look at this. They invest their life in following God and this is what they get. Where is their God when they need Him most? That's what's happening to the psalmist. And friends, this has been true of God's people since sin has entered the world. We're at odds with the world. 
Because our allegiance is not to the values of this earthly kingdom, but to Christ. So Paul tells Timothy, if anyone desires to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Isaiah tells us Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so if our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, then our world, who is opposed to Christ, will be opposed to us. And that has the the capability of sinking us into deep depression as we walk through this world. Now, that's the external circumstance for the psalmist, but the reality is that may not be that for us. There may be a number of other external circumstances that push us into spiritual depression. It could be physical illness, your own or the physical illness of someone in your family. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be a traumatic event from childhood. It could be genetics the disposition that you have. It could be poor habits, relational conflict, or the consequences of your own sinful behavior, a host of other issues. Friends, we have to be aware when we're in this place of discouragement, deep discouragement, we have to ask that question, not only what's going on inside of us, but what's going on around us that may contribute to this. And oftentimes what happens is the external circumstances reveal the internal struggle. Imagine you had a pickup truck, which is very rare around here. Let's say you had one, and you're like, man, this, I've had this thing for a while. It drives really smoothly. I don't usually put a lot of stuff in the back. And then all of a sudden, a friend says, hey, I have a yard project. Can you help me out? You say, sure. By the way, if you have a pickup, that's what people do. They're like, can you help me with stuff? So you go to Home Depot with your friend, and you start loading up all the stuff in the back, bags of cement, bags of mulch, and you're, you're loading up the truck bed, and it is as, as loaded as it can. And you start driving down the road, and immediately when you get out of the parking lot and start speeding up, the car is shaking uncontrollably. uncontrollably. It's undrivable. So you, you take it into the mechanic, and you say, this thing's been driving fine. I have no idea. I've had it for years. What's the issue? And he looks underneath and, and sort of, you know, takes a, takes a look and says, listen, your axles are cracked. They've been cracked for, for a long time. And you say, wait a second. It's been driving fine until today. And he says, well, yeah, you didn't notice it because you didn't have any weight in the back of the truck. But the moment you started putting weight on the back of the truck, that external weight revealed the internal cracks. So now the car is shaking. Friends, that is our lives in a fallen world. External circumstances, whatever they may be, pressures, sorrows, sufferings, when they're heaped up upon us so much and put that pressure, it reveals the cracks in our own heart. So if you're in a dark night of the soul, just let me encourage you, take stock in what's going on around you and within you. How may these things be relating to one another so that, so that you can be a self-aware sufferer and respond accordingly? Right? So we ask, we ask the question, what am I feeling internally right now? I don't want to suppress that. I want to be honest about it, pour it to the Lord. We, we ask the question, what am I experiencing externally? And then we ask those questions, we gather that information so that we can respond rightly, which leads us to number three. What do I do about it? This is where we see the psalmist's response. And we just want to spend the rest of our time just considering practically how do we respond when our souls are downcast. This is for our own souls, and this is for us as we help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And there are five things here that I want to draw out from the psalmist. The first one is very obvious. We've said it already. Number one, go to God in prayer. Go to God in prayer. We see that in every psalm this summer. But we need to hear it because our temptation is first to say, I feel this way, how can I fix it? What do I need to do to fix this? That's our impulse. The psalmist's impulse is, whatever it is, pour it out to God. It's not the only thing we do, but it's the first thing we do. Ed Welch, in his book, Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness, he says this, you're standing at a crossroads, and you'll take one path or the other. There's no such thing as not choosing, because not choosing is one of the paths. It, too, is a choice. Your decision is between calling out to the Lord or not. This is the choice that has confronted those in misery throughout history. Listen to the prophet Hosea, who wrote these words on behalf of the Lord. They do not cry out to me for their hearts, from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. You can sit in silence or cry to the Lord. You can cry on your bed or cry to the Lord. Those are the two choices. So friend, cry out to God. Not the only thing we must do, but it is the first thing. And friends, notice this. In doing this, you are acting in faith, even though your faith may be hanging on by a thread. Prayer in the midst of spiritual depression, a dark night of the soul, is proof that your spiritual life has not flatlined. It's an act of faith. You're running to him even when you can't feel it. Even if the prayer is as simple as this, Lord, help me. It's number one. Go to God in prayer. Second, lean on others. Lean on others. Martin Luther, who himself struggled with dark nights of the soul, spiritual depression, he described how this struggle tends to curve us inward on ourselves. We're tempted to isolate. We retreat from friendships. We retreat from uh, maybe our church family, and we just curve inward. We say, no one can understand what I'm going through, so I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to keep to myself and try to wait this out. Friends, don't do that. We must fight that temptation. Now, where do I get this in the psalm? Because the psalmist is completely alone here, but notice he's not alone by choice. What does he long for? in his suffering. He longs to be with the people of God. It's as if he's saying, I know, I know if I could just get with my brothers and sisters in Christ, it would be a healing medicine to my downcast soul. Lean upon others. Notice also, again, this was the kind of songs, that song that was sung continually in Israelite worship. So friend, tell others about your struggle Ask for prayer. Share what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. And listen to this. This is so important to say. If you do that in your Christian relationships in the church and you continue to do those things and you still still feel stuck, you may need help from a counselor. You may need some professional help. And there should be absolutely no shame in that. That is one of the reasons we partner with the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling and because I work there. But the first reason (laughs) is because it's a great ministry that provides gospel-centered, clinically informed counseling for those who are in need. 
That may mean what leaning upon others is, but don't isolate. Number two, lean upon others. Number three, remember. The psalmist, he he reminds himself, notice several times he reminds himself of God's past faithfulness, right? Verse four, these things I remember. Verses five, verses 11, I shall again praise him. When you don't feel like the promises of God are true, you and I have to remind ourselves that they are. The promises of God are not based upon our feelings. They're based upon God and his character, which are unshakable. So the psalmist says, listen, it feels like you've forgotten me now, but I remember the sweet sense of your presence in the past, and I'm confident that I will sense it once again. So we, we must assess our feelings properly, but we can't be directed by them. We must lead our feelings by remembering the truth of God's promises. Promises like Deuteronomy 31.8. It's the Lord God who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or, most importantly, the promise of Christ. Have you noticed, as we've read this psalm, Psalm 42, It is a psalm that Christ could have easily prayed as he faced the cross. It's one that he certainly fulfilled as he endured the cross, his own dark night of the soul. What did Jesus say? When he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. He was not just talking about water, though he was certainly thirsty, but he was thirsting for the presence of the Father. He was forsaken by God as he endured the cross because he was bearing our sins and our sorrows. And then he was delivered up and raised from the dead. He died to pay for our sins. He raised to defeat sin and death. And he promises to return to do away with all sin, sorrow, and depression. That's the promise of the gospel. And those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ are redeemed and they're given this promise. How does the book of Matthew end? What does he tell his disciples? And by way of extension, you and I, Christian, he says, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Not only I'm with you as someone who doesn't understand, Jesus says, Christian, I'm with you as one who has endured the same thing for you. And one day, one day, I'll do away with all of the depression, all of the sorrows, all of the discouragement. So friends, remember the promise of the gospel. Fourth, reflect on God's sovereign love. I love this here because the psalmist gets very theological in verse 7 when he says, deep calls out to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You notice what he says there? Whose waves and breakers? Whose waterfalls? God's. He doesn't say these are the world's breakers or my circumstances breakers or or the devil's waves. These are God's, and this is not an accusation. It's a comfort. It's, It's the reason you and I can pour out our spiritually depressed hearts to him because we can be confident that none of this is outside the sovereign hand of God. That's what the psalmist believed. 
And friends, God's sovereignty, if he was just in total control, it would be of no comfort to us if he weren't also loving. But what do we read in the very next verse, in verse 8? Not only is God sovereign, verse 7, but he loves us. Verse 8, day by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Friends, in the dark nights of your soul, Let me plead with you, make the sovereign love of God the content of your singing and your praying. Pray with the psalmist like this, God, I don't know why, I don't know how long, I want it to stop, I'm hurting, I'm frustrated, I feel abandoned, but I will make my mind and heart reflect on this truth. You are sovereign and you love me. Full stop. You can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28, I know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not I think, but I know. This is what led led Charles Spurgeon, a man who also had many bouts of depression, to say, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So reflect on God's sovereign love. And then fifth and finally, preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. This is actually the theme of the psalm. Verse 5, verse 11, we see it again in, chapter, in Psalm 43. What does he say? Who's he talking to? Why are you cast down, O my soul? That's self-talk, the best kind. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says on this issue of preaching to yourself. This is a long quote but it's worth it. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self-talk, the self-talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I'll speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him. For the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. So brothers and sisters, as we do battle, 
with, with the minor key dark nights of our souls. Let's commit by God's grace, by the power of the gospel, to examine the inward struggle, the outward circumstances carefully, to help one another do the same so that we can rightly proclaim the hope of Christ to our souls and to others. He is our hope. We shall again praise him.